Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And today, we are very fortunate to have with us Andrew Sheffardini from FIS. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hi, Cindy. Glad to be with you. Good. Well, we are really glad to have you here to be able to hear from a fintech company, which we haven't yet on all things ESG. But before we jump into that, let me just tell you all a little bit about Andrew. He has a really fascinating background. So Andrew right now is the Chief Sustainability Officer and Head of Global Public Policy for FIS, a fintech company. They're a global leader in tech and solutions and services for merchants, banks, and capital market businesses. In addition to his responsibilities for sustainability and global public public policy, Andrew also oversees uh, the risk department's client relations and training and awareness functions. Prior to his time at FIS, he also was at WorldPay, and he spent some time at Chiquita Brands. But here's the really interesting part. Before he entered the private sector, he spent time as a public servant on both the legislative and executive side, including serving as a state rep in Ohio. So, Andrew, that is a really cool background. So what did you do on the executive side? Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that before you jumped over into the private sector? Sure. No, I've been uh, very fortunate to have a very interesting career. Uh, one of my early bosses said, you know, life is a series of adventures. And I certainly feel that that's how, that's how my career has been. Uh, so early on, I got involved in politics, uh, worked for the now U.S. Senator from uh, Ohio, uh, Senator Rob Portman. Uh, and that led me to working in Washington, D.C. for seven years in the George W. Bush administration. So I had the chance to have a number of interesting roles in Washington, D.C., including uh, helping the federal uh, IT uh, CIO uh, for the federal government, as well as uh, serving directly in the White House as a special assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs. So it's been been a lot of fun. So now you're in Ohio. I'm here in Arkansas. We're still dealing with uh, the COVID environment and issue, but fortunate enough to be able to connect in this way, which is just, I think, fantastic for the audience to be able to be able to hear from people who are all over the world, really, on the important topic of this season, which is ESG. And we've interviewed uh, some others I have for this season of the podcast, but they have not been in the fintech area. So again, I think it's going to be really interesting to hear how a company in that space deals with ESG. I'm sure it's going to be very different than what we've heard about uh, kind of consumer products companies. But But before we get into that, I always like the audience to get to know the guest a little bit more than just their bio or what you did in Washington, D.C. So how did you actually get into this particular space, Andrew, the kind of the ESG that goes along with the public policy space? How how did your how did your life journey lead you to that? Sure. No, it's a great question. And And I think a lot about that a lot. And I've been really fortunate throughout my career to sort of fall into some really interesting things. And part of that is because I'm driven to solve problems. And one of the 
the opportunities that uh, came about at FIS was that uh, we were doing a lot of really interesting things, a lot of things in sustainability, a lot of things around ESG, different topics, but it wasn't being done sort of across the business in a systemic and institutionalized way. And so when we identified that this was something that we needed to take on, my boss, the CEO, the chief of staff to the CEO said, hey, would you be willing to take this on? We think because of your background uh, and communications in public policy and mm-hmm doing some of the philanthropy at, a, at the previous company called WorldPay, which FIS uh, acquired, could be really interesting for pulling this together. And so it was a great opportunity to sort of dive right in about two years ago and really help build this program up. And while there certainly have been a lot of people in sustainability in many different companies for decades, it, a lot of the bigger companies, especially those that are in energy or those that have a major sort of physical impact, right, in terms of the environment, uh, many companies, there's not enough sort of supply and demand out there in terms of people that can actually pull this together. And I read yeah. an interesting uh, document on the chief sustainability officer in the role. And it talked about, it was a combination of communications and marketing and public policy and all this stakeholder management. I'm like, that's all the things I've done. So that's right. how I fell into it. And I think it's what's uh, enabled me to be successful so far in the role. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think that there are a number of roles in business now that are kind of focused on, you know, the stakeholder at large where um, people are starting to get out of their silos and figure out, hey, it's a lot better if we think about this from, from the company's perspective, from a horizontal point of view, figure out all those connection points and, and maximize the, the resources we have internally that have some of these competencies that come to bear in, in several different areas. So that's, that's really cool. That's also, I think it's good for students who are part of the audience here to hear that careers aren't always linear, right? And life is a journey. So being able to kind of find your way along and focus on competencies while you're doing it is a, I think, a good skill. I think when we think about that, you know, career ladders, right? I, I say I might not have been on the same ladder, but it's all, but I've jumped from ladder to ladder and, and most of them have been incremental to yep. the things that I've done, right? So yep. they haven't been far stretches, but they've really built that out. And to your point, that's how you can make a really great and broad career. Yeah, I would agree. So let's now start talking a little bit about ESG in particular. And and I think sustainability, I think corporate social responsibility, you know, even this broad view of uh, corporations, uh, purpose is to serve all stakeholders. All of that's kind of been a, a, a little bit on the side for many, many years. I, I think many would be of that opinion. But as of late, it's really come into focus and is, is kind of core, being seen as more core to what a company is by investors and by consumers and really by all the stakeholders. And my, my question for you is, having watched that kind of evolution can you identify a tipping point or do you think there was a tipping point or what, what kind of brought us to where we are today with the significance of, of ESG? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great question. And I, I view it through a number of the lenses that we just talked about, both my public policy hat, looking at this from a, from a political standpoint, looking at it from a communication standpoint. Um, and to your point, this idea of multiple stakeholders out there. And when we think about what ESG is all about, it's really about a larger set of stakeholders involved in capitalism. Some people call mm. it stakeholder capitalism, right? Not just necessarily shareholder. Now, obviously, shareholders still, you know, you've got to do well financially before you can do well in, in many of your other things. But it's broadening that view of how um, 
these other stakeholders really sh should have a seat at the table on how is your company responding to your overall societal impact, right? right. Those stakeholders aren't just people, they're the environment too, right? For instance, is a stakeholder in stakeholder capitalism. And I think you see with the Business Roundtable, which is one of the leading trade, business trade associations in Washington, representing many of the most of the Fortune 500 companies, a couple of years ago, they took a shift and say, hey, the purpose of a corporation isn't necessarily only for shareholders, but also for these other stakeholders, right? Yeah. And so they really talked about the purpose of a corporation. The World Economic Forum, which is the leading sort of business forum of the world, has made that shift as well. And so I do think it's here to stay for those reasons, because that is an acknowledgement of where society expects businesses to go. And one of the things I always remember um, in my communications days is Edelman, which is a big public relations oh, yeah. firm, always did a study about trust. Yeah. And they rated government, they rated corporations, they rated all kinds of different institutions. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, over the last 10 years in particular, corporations were actually seen as most trusted by people and consumers and others. That's Why? Right. Why? Because many corporations around many of these ESG topics were stepping up to solve problems that government wasn't willing to solve. That's right. But I think what you've seen is government not. And then that's where it translates over into the investor side, right? The shareholders, the millennials, the Gen Z say, hey, we care about the environment. We care about this. And if government's not going to do it, we're not going to invest our money in a place that doesn't support what we think needs to get done in terms of these societal problems. So I think that's why the shift is happening. It's this virtuous cycle of pressure among pressure among pressure that that and pressuring on these different stakeholder groups. And that's why I think it's going to stay. We're, we've got the momentum now. When did this shift happen? I would say the last five years, you've seen a significant shift because I think earlier, as we were talking before the podcast started, if you were in energy or heavy manufacturing, other things that had more clearly identifiable stakeholder issues or impacts. Yeah. Those are the kinds of companies that have had this kind of focus for years. Now every company has to have a focus on this. And when you think about climate change and hitting the goals of, of keeping the earth between one, you know, 1.5 degrees centigrade, um, the temperature rise under that, every business has to be part of that, not just certain businesses. So that's why I think some of these things are really taking that approach. Yeah, I think you're right. And that, that Edelman Trust Barometer report, I I still find that quite um, useful to take a look at when it, you know, every year when it comes out. And one of the things that that it made me think of just listening to you talk just then was uh, they're finding, um, I think it was just last year when it was, you know, for corporations, uh, if you really want to create trust, you need to be both competent but also ethical. The ethical component of that they found in the study was like 76% of the equation. Um, for companies. So again, I think that's sort of an indication of how important making sure you listen to all of the stakeholders and represent all of their views at the, at the table really are if an old corporation wants to be trusted. I think another really important thing from, from that um, report, and we'll talk a little bit about this more in our podcast here today, is how this whole topic of ESG really is not even going to be able to be solved just by one company or just by the societal institution of kind of corporations, really is going to have to be collaboration between business and government um, and to some extent um, NGOs as well. And in COVID, I think we saw a little bit of that 
um, with with businesses trying to kind of fill in the gaps for where maybe they saw you know business lacking and and trying to to move a little bit quicker. But hopefully, we'll see some additional collaborations in this overall space of ESG. So when you think about Andrew, uh, a fintech company. You think about ESG, it's got to be a completely different lens than like a consumer products company. So I want to spend a little time talking about all three parts of that, the E and the S and the G, but can you just take a step back first and tell us what are the issues within the, that overall big bucket that are the highest priority for a fintech company like FIS? No, it's, a, it's a great question and one I think about a lot. And you know, as you may know, when you look at some of the different metric rating frameworks that we try to align to as, as an industry or as a company, particularly SASB, uh, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, you know, we're in the software and services industry, right? So <clears throat> the, the set of material issues that we have to think about as a fintech company may be different than a consumer packaged goods company, right? Not that they don't have some of the same issues, but there may be more material issues for them versus, for, versus someone like us. Obviously, the, the the biggest in, uh, impact that probably a company like ours does is we are a huge consumer of energy, right? And while we're not shipping our products to you, we're not putting them on boats or planes or, or things because they're digitally delivered, it takes a lot of electricity to do that. Mm. And so it, that energy usage and the climate emissions that result from that are probably one of the top issues for us, right? And, and when we reported this year in our sustainability report for the first time we broke out our data center energy use versus our overall use, yeah. and not surprisingly, it was the most of all of our energy use. Now, right. we'll see year over year based on the fact that most people were working from home this year, maybe the facility energy you know, goes up, but, but energy tends to be sort of a, a top one. For our industry, the S in terms of social, meaning human capital management, is probably one of the top things. And when we think about, when investors think about ESG, they're not just thinking about how are you, when we think about the word sustainability, it's not just about environmental sustainability, but it's the sustainability of your business. Right. What are the, what are the risks to your business that if you don't tackle these things, that your business model is not going to be sustainable. So for instance, there is a huge competition for talent right now, as, as we all know. Right. And if we didn't have as a company leading human capital management programs, leading inclusion and diversity programs, meaning you know, robust inclusion networks, professional opportunities, mentoring, uh, training on the employment side and not just training for what you have to do to do your job, but really investing in people to think about long-term career training, right? Employee safety, right? Mm -hmm. When we went through COVID, we put our employees first and said, hey, how do we make sure that we're creating safe work environments? How do we shift as many people as we can to home uh, that, that can work from home for those that have to be in the office? So those are some of those material topics that, uh, the rating agencies are saying, if you don't have good sustainable practices in these areas, you're going to lose out yeah. and your business model is not going to be sustainable. So those are two of the biggest ones for us. Governance on the governance sites for a fintech company, people think typically about some of the labor issues or the environmental issues, but core to societal purpose, for instance, for a company like ours is data privacy, right? We manage and protect a lot of 
financial data that moves around the globe. And so if we're not using that responsibly, if we're not using that in a way that's protective of the end consumer and our merchant and banking clients, then we don't have a right to operate. So that is a material ESG issue for us. Right. And finally, one is on financial inclusion. So when we think about what is our purpose in society as a company, right? Our purpose is to empower the digital economy, right? From banking services to capital market services to merchants. When you swipe, swipe that, you know, we're, we're in the United States, one out of four credit card swipes you make is probably coming through our company. And what that means is that we have to be a reliable and we have to make sure that no one is left behind in the digital economy. As cash gets less and less frequent, checks get less and less frequent, how are we making sure that nobody is left behind in every community going forward? So those are some of the societal things that we think about in our particular for a fintech company. Yeah, it's funny when you would say that because, you know, I write checks very rarely anymore. <laughs> I almost never carry cash. I try to have a few dollars in my pocket so that when I go through the car wash, I can at least, you know, tip the guys who are who are kind enough right. to dry the car. But it's just become, to your point, such a such a digital space that um, the, the paper check writing and carrying of cash almost feels a bit outdated. Uh, but that's, that, that's a whole topic for another day. Let's, let's those dig, dig, dig into a little bit on the governance side and data privacy, which is a huge, huge issue right now for pretty much any tech company. But can you share with us a little bit more uh, about that ex- with respect to data privacy, what FIS is doing, what progress have you really made in that space to drill down on uh, data privacy, um, as well as making sure that the other aspect, not just data privacy, but you're bringing, you're fulfilling your true purpose um, for those, particularly maybe the unbanked. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So first, if you, if you really look in, in some of these talk, how the way I structured our first two uh, sustainability reports, one we just published uh, in June and the previous one, the June before, I structure actually the reports in, in the, in do the chapters in order of sort of materiality in a way yeah. right, in terms of that. And number one goes to what we just talked about, about making sure there's that financial inclusion going forward. The second chapter though, um, is just as important, which is protecting our clients in the financial system, right? Yeah. Because it's not just the data that we have for our clients, but we have to protect the whole financial system when we think about it, right? And so we're the custodian. Sometimes we're just processing that data for someone else, right? Or, or sometimes we're holding the data for them. Mm-hmm. And privacy could be more important. One of the things that obviously we've seen over the last uh, five years is a plethora of privacy laws, both at the state level, there hasn't mm-hmm. been one at the federal level in the US, but obviously Europe had GDPR. The rest of the world is, is just a number. And really, when we think about not only data privacy, um, but free speech, a whole bunch of other types of ESG issues, right? And social issues, the world is trying to figure out how to, what's the right balance, right? Yeah, and right. what we put in our report this year, and, and we talked about it last year, there's a robust chapter, you know, one, we have a lot of strong governance and overstrike on how data can be used, right? And it starts with the, um, the client, what did, how did they want us to use their data? What is the way, and, and, and if they do give us more permissions to use their data in other ways, how do we anonymize that data, right? Mm. And even when you think about data protection and data privacy, so after one of the big uh, retailer breaches a number of years ago, part of the reason that uh, 
a lot of retailers got breached was they were still using sort of regular credit card numbers. So what we do sometimes is we tokenize the number. So when you when it gets actually transmitted to us, it's no longer even stored in the system as a credit card number. It's stored in there. So if, even if it's breached, it's really useless to the cyber criminals for the retailer going mm -hmm. forward. So we think about this 360 approach that's really, you know, individual and consumer uh, driven, client driven on what we can use and then making sure that when we have the data, how do we protect it as much as possible? And that also leads into sort of operational resiliency where not only is it about protecting the data and the usage rights for it, but also making sure that it's the availability of that data, the uptime of that data, the oh, uptime yeah. of our systems is, is really uh, applicable. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine how important operational resiliency is for a company like yours. I mean, when you think about what you just said, one of in every four credit card swipes somewhere, you know, FIS may be in that chain, realizing people really don't use checks and cash much anymore, and it is all digital. If that were to go down, that would have a huge effect on the economy. So, so let's talk for a minute about, let's go back. Uh, and you talked about also about the use of energy um, being one of the, the main issues uh, in the data centers and, and how much energy they use. And so tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us about FIS's environmental footprint. What does that look like and what progress are you making to um, improve on that? Yeah, and you know, this is an area that I think there's going to start to be some harmonization across the world as it comes to how should you be reporting data? Yeah. Um, how do you do comparisons between companies, right? And there's a lot of, there's been a lot of development on this. The greenhouse gas protocol is, for instance, the protocol of the standards that we use to sort of measure our own emissions, right? Because the usage of energy in itself isn't necessarily bad. It's the emissions that are caused by the energy, right? And so if you could get uh, renewable energy, wind, solar, hydro from your local utility, technically that would be essentially net zero emissions from, you know, into the atmosphere. So if you had a, a, one of your data centers powered by that, you really are not putting any emissions into, into the atmosphere on that. But that's obviously not the case in the United States that every local power plant can do. That's not the, it's right. not the case uh, really worldwide. And that's one of the things that, so as we think about how do we address this, what is the biggest thing that we can do as a company to um, offset or mitigate that energy use. So, so right. obviously I was just on the phone with our CIO uh, of the company uh, a couple of days ago. We started talking about, okay, as we do upgrades in our data centers, uh, how do we make sure that we're buying the energy efficient you know, power backup systems? How do we make sure that we're replacing you know, all of the lighting with LED lighting, right? Could we start installing solar panels on these so that we can bring some of the consumption in-house, you know, the power generation in-house? But that's really about reduction in efficiency, right? But our big strategy is how do we get to 100% renewable usage across our footprint? And that's a commitment that we made back in March. We made several commitments. One, we said we're going to offset and get the carbon neutrality for our scope one and two emissions, which are, again, largely around the energy use. Two, we're going to try to get to 100% uh, renewable energy by 2025, along with the carbon neutrality. And three, we're going to set science-based targets in line with the Paris Climate Accord. So mm -hmm. climate, and we earlier talked about that, it's about keeping the earth, you know, from warming another 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah. To do that, 
every country has to have a national contribution. That means every company has, as a percentage, has to do a certain amount to get there. But to get there, it's going to be tricky over the next five years, not just for us, but for every company, because so many companies are making these uh, commitments, but there's not enough supply of renewable energy in the market today, mm. right? And so uh, what I think you're going to see is a, a rapid market development of these energy pro projects. There's going to be a, a fuel of investment uh, to really ramp all of this supply up, not only for the United States, but globally. How interesting. You talked about harmonization because there are so many different rating agencies out there and standards that they look at and, and the benefit that that harmonization may create. Um, just last week, Gary Gensler, the SEC, said he's going to have his staff start looking at whether or not public companies should be required to report in a consistent way, potentially all the way to, to scope three you know, um, uh, emissions for um, um, energy use. What do you think about whether or not that's needed uh, in terms of regulatory? Or do you think that kind of in the spirit of collaboration, companies as a whole, multinationals can help with the winnowing down of what the kind of the transparent harmonization of the standards should be? Where, where, do, you, where do you come out on that? Yeah, there's, there's been a... Um, private sector effort, even among the, the, the framework agencies to try to drive some harmonization between, between themselves. And, you know, obviously there's some market incentive, uh, you know, not to do that as well, right? Because there's a, there's a whole industry that's growing up around this with, with a little bit of um, different and a little bit of a different weightings on different kinds of standards and what uh, one group may want over the other in terms of, of being the right one. Uh, you also have Europe, you know, considering the European standard, there's, you know, other regions of the world, APAC, LATAM, you know, everything that you've got to think about as well. From what I hear, I think, I think companies, at least in the United States, would love uh, to have a one or two stakes in the ground that they could sort of center around. And in FIS, we've taken sort of a blended approach over the last couple of years of a blended SASB and GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative Framework, to sort of meet the needs of our European investors as well as the as the U.S. investors, right, and tried to take a blended approach on that. Um, but I I don't I don't know if all the global regulators will be able to agree in a short period of time on that. Um, so my I think uh, if the SEC puts down a, a stake uh, in that, I think it will be, and I think they will do by the fall. Uh, we think that there will be a, a promulgation of, of those initial rules. Uh, now, the question is, are they more principle-based or are they more prescriptive? Right. And I think that is that is the big question. And do they align to an existing standard like the greenhouse gas protocol and other things like that? Because as we talked about earlier, it is hard to compare apples and oranges. Yeah. And even when you think about when we went through our emissions and breaking out the data centers this year, I was, I, I asked our consultants, I said, well, tell me the definition of a data center that should be included under the greenhouse gas protocol. And the problem, there isn't a specific right. definition. So is a server closet with 15 computers, servers in it, a, a data center or, you know, and so there's still, I think today, even with the advancement of the accounting uh, around greenhouse gases and emissions, it, there's still a lot more questions and flexibility to to really drive full comparisons, but we'll get there. I mean, this is not unlike financial reporting. Uh, you know, 
early on in its early days. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but but I would agree with you as much as we all may like to think there could be one global standard that would make it easier for everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure that we'll we'll get there. It will. It may be country specific and still trying to figure out how to have a blended approach to meet the, the global standards. So we'll have to watch that unfold. Right. So the other the other thing that I think is somewhat interesting is, you know, the, the, for reporting, um, we're talking now about climate and what those uh, reporting requirements may be. And there certainly are a lot of governance reporting requirements and financial reporting social issues that the S in ESG is something that um, hasn't yet been picked up on by the regulators in terms of thinking about how to how to report out on that. So I guess a couple of things come to mind for me in that bucket. One is, do you think that there will still be, for example, the sustainability reports that may focus more on the social issues, you know, what consumers may want to know that would be separate from a reporting regime for uh, imposed by regulators? How are the social issues in ESG going to get picked up for transparency purposes? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. So <clears throat> there are, so I do think in terms of what the SEC is thinking about in particular is around diversity and inclusion metrics in particular. And they did have some guidance earlier this year around, or maybe it was last year around how to describe a little bit more around your human capital management strategy. And yeah. it was more voluntary right now, but there was right. sort of, here's the guidelines on which you, you should disclose um, these particular things. I, um, and so I think diversity and inclusion metrics will be one that, that the government will probably uh, maybe request. Obviously many uh, federal contractors, public companies report their EE01, which is the complete breakdown. Yeah. That's not usually a public document, although a lot of investors and others are, are requesting that. And if you're a federal contractor, I could see the Biden administration, you, you know, if they don't go all the way with the SEC at all public companies using the, sort of the federal contracting um, lever to pull companies to move out on that. Interestingly, there, you're right that the, there are some clearly defined human capital management metrics uh, when we think about talent. Uh, they want to talk, want you to disclose some of the frameworks, not the government, but retention rates, your employee engagement rates, you know, how engaged are your employees yeah. and you know, what's, what's the standard for how that's really calculated though. And it's, it's different in a lot of companies. Um, you know, what is your rate of hiring in certain uh, underrepresented minority groups or in gender? There's um, numbers that we talked about training and learning, like how many hours of non-mandatory training is being taken, right. right? How many courses do you offer? So there is a whole litany of metrics around um, those particular uh, places. There are also around labor management issues with yeah. you know, organized labor and different things like that as well. So it will be interesting to see where they go. It, interestingly enough, you may remember many years ago before sort of this idea of more formal reporting on ESG and aligned to frameworks. Most companies did corporate citizenship report, right. something that was more focused on philanthropy and community. Yes. yes. I think we're just seeing more and more that that that's that has sort of evolved into a more robust ESG report. So to answer your question, I don't think we'll see it separating out because it has to be a narrative. Yeah. You have to tell the whole story. I, I like to say internally at the company that our sustainability report is about transparency and telling people where we are today, mm -hmm. but also an aspirational document of where we want to be and who we yeah. want to be, right? Yeah. Because yeah. not every company is going to have 
great metrics to disclose on some of these challenges that they yeah. face. Yeah. But that disclosure builds the trust that yeah. you were talking about before. Yeah. And if you have the trust, then you know that goes a long way with all of your stakeholders going. Yeah. Forward. And if you can show progress and that at least you are aware of the issues and you know you're working on them. Um, you know, then stakeholders are going to be more likely to go on that journey with you. So, you know, that's interesting. We, we may end up having is a bit of a blended approach, even on what gets reported out. There will be some that's required, right? And, but then companies will, to the, to, the, to the extent of materiality on the remaining issues and the litany of the social issues that you just listed off, volunteer, like be more transparent and be very authentic and say, okay, here's what we're required to tell you, but there's all this other information that we know you'd like to know. And we're going to put all of that together. And it may be more of a, a blended required and voluntary reporting that we see. So that'll be very interesting to watch all of this evolve. It's a very fast moving field, I would say. Well, Andrew, this has been a great conversation. The one last question I always like to ask my guests before I let you go is, for some recommendations um, for folks who want to learn a little bit more about this space, do you have any good books you've read lately or podcasts that you could maybe recommend or a good documentary for somebody that wants to go a little deeper either on ESG generally or how it relates to fintech companies or any of that? Yeah, so I think, you know, if there's something very quick and most people would have it on demand on on or YouTube it even, you know, the 60 Minutes episode where Bill Gates talks about sort of what's coming and how he sees the um, sort of the green revolution, right, at the, for lack of a better term. And I think he does a nice job sort of future gazing of how things will evolve um, over time. He's obviously written a book as well about, about these topics. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of, I learn every day, there are plenty of documentaries on all of the streaming services that, you know, I'm not going to recommend one in particular because, sure. you know, some of them uh, can be very outlandish and some of them oh. can be very, uh, and I know the truth is always some, somewhere in the, in the middle of, of some of these things, but um, right. there is uh, the, the Bill Gates interview is if you want to sort of a snapshot of sort that of, that's a good one. How, yeah. How, and it's not long and it's easy to watch. It um, is. Wow. And it really makes, I thought it was very, uh, he was very plain spoken uh, in that. So it was very, it was engaging. I actually saw that one live too. So that's a great recommendation. Well, good. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for helping us understand the whole world of ESG and how that relates with um, the, the fintech industry. I really appreciate it. And uh, we're very fortunate as well to count your CEO as one of Walton College's um, alumni. And I'm also very fortunate to have your CIO, Kara Hill, on our external advisory board. So I appreciate you spending some time with us today and um, talking deeply about the topic of ESG. Well, and then on that point, our you know this this really has been uh, our CEO Gary Norcross is why the company has made so much progress on ESG, and it start that commitment has to start from the top, and it has mm -hmm. to be not just about um, meeting an expectation, but doing the right thing. And and he taught he just talked about that this morning on one of our leadership calls. So uh, I'm glad he's on the board there, and and uh, Kara uh, is on as well. So. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Well, thank you, Andrew. This has been a true pleasure. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Cindy. All right. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.